We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. When I lived in New York, I loved hazelnut bodega coffee. Like, I just love trash coffee. Um, always have. And I'm not picky. I don't like to put milk in it. Like, it's just, you know, give me some watery crap and that's great. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. I wanted to have journalist Anne Helen Pearson on not only to talk about modern office lunch culture, I wanted to have journalist Anne Helen Peterson on to talk about soup. This is such a rich and textured conversation from one of the sharpest observers around. And if you aren't reading her culture study newsletter, man, you're missing out. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. And Helen Peterson, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to talk to you. We will get into soup because I know you have a real interest in it. Um, you've written about it. You've commented on it. But also I want to talk about work because your podcast, Work Appropriate, covers a lot of topics within the workplace and, and kind of the way we're in a hybrid world. But I want to really tap into how, how food is affected by this hybrid work lifestyle that many of our listeners have. But first, take us back to BuzzFeed when you were working in New York. I have a lot. I work a hybrid life myself, and I have a lot of these memories of working five days in an office. But what was work lunch like when you were working at BuzzFeed? So first, let me say that before I worked at BuzzFeed, I was an academic. And the idea of like perks in the office was totally foreign to me. <laughs> so when I got to BuzzFeed and they had lunch twice a week, it's like, this is amazing. <laughs> it was just like, it was good food. You know, like the catering that you get in New York that a lot of companies get in New York. Like, it's like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It was just as good as you would probably get going out to like get whatever on the street. Um, but then also a lot of people who worked at BuzzFeed at that time weren't getting paid that much. So sometimes people would like, they lunch would be their primary meal. You'd yeah. get go in and you'd eat lunch and then you'd get leftovers or yeah. you'd like make a little snack out of the other snacks in the office. And for me, I, because again, coming from academia, I was so resistant to the idea of paying a significant amount of money every day for lunch that the days when we didn't have lunch catered, I would come up with all sorts of like, hacks to turn like two yogurts and a string cheese and some pretzels into your lunch. You know what I yeah, mean? Like <laughs> there was all sorts of ways you could turn uh, something into lunch. And the only time that I would pay to go out to lunch is if someone asked like, oh, let's go do this or whatever. Yeah. But I would say primarily the lunch culture at BuzzFeed the, on the days when you weren't eating the, the catered freebies. lunch was go out, get something to go and bring it back and then eat it at your desk. Yeah. And like, let's talk about the transition when the pandemic happened, um, when we were able to actually have a sane lunch and not have to actually do it at our desk and and hunch over um, a, a garbage can if we wanted to eat a mango, because I think we all did that. 
I think it, <laughs> right? I mean, we've all done that. Now tell me, like, what's the, what's it like now? Uh, and that, through your, your journalism, through your writing, are you observing that quote unquote office lunch culture has, has shifted a bit? Well, I think most people during the pen, especially the beginning of the pandemic, they didn't like pause to eat lunch. I think it was still a sad desk lunch. It was just you were at home and eating your sad desk yeah. lunch. Uh, so I think, and in some ways, well, this is the hard thing. There's like this idealization of like, oh, I used to go out and get my sweet green salad and then I would eat it with my friends or I would eat it in the park or whatever. I think that that happened very seldom. Yeah, It might've happened with an older generation of worker. Like my boss at BuzzFeed would go and have like power lunches all the time where he actually like had conversations over lunch. That was never my reality. I was no. just shoveling it into my mouth as I like stared at Twitter, right? Like this is, this was, th that was not like, I think how, kind of like how people idealize the commute as this relaxing time that you were able to to transition from work life and back into home life. Like, no, the the reality was that either you were stuck, stuck in traffic or like had your nose smashed into someone else's back on the subway train. So I don't actually think there was a huge change. Idealized work is a big part of our reality that we think about the past and we think about it fondly. And I fully agree with you that um, like the idea of the commute being this charming time is is really false. And uh, yeah, the lunch, the lunch is it is generational because I think some folks were able to take that 30 to 45 minute break. But working in media as you and I do, we certainly were on deadline all the time, and there, like lunch was not a time to like have a chill. Now, I want to ask about the power lunch because I, I feel like you're 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 you must have had at least one fancy ass New York City power lunch. Do you have any memories? I've had one fancy New York lunch. I have one power lunch my entire life. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> so. Right before I came to BuzzFeed, I wrote a piece for the website, The All, which used yeah. to be a very popular website. And uh, that piece was about a passion of mine, which is the history of Entertainment Weekly. Yeah. Entertainment Weekly used to be a very different sort of magazine. Uh, like it was a must read. It was very thick. It was uh, intellectual, cerebral. It was not just like a, mm. here's the next Marvel movie. <laughs> it was a different sort of magazine. And I started reading it when I was 10 years old and I read it obsessively and like graded each, <laughs> each <laughs> issue that I got. I was living in Idaho at this time. So it was very foreign. Like all of the things that it was talking about was very foreign to me, but I wrote about, uh, the history of Entertainment Weekly, of oh, there's a really interesting backstory into its evolution. And the former editor-in-chief of the magazine emailed me and was like, oh, you got so much right, but I also want to tell you some stuff that, that's not in here. Mm -hmm. And this is a guy who had come up, you know, had been the editor-in-chief in, at, at Entertainment Weekly, which was a time... Inc. publication, so big magazine. The 90s, it, too, was a time when those editors-in-chiefs were like the CEOs of banks in terms yes, of the compensation. absolutely. Like black car everywhere, yeah. you know, just rolling in at expense, everything. And I think all he knew about how you take someone out to lunch or how you, like, have a meeting to talk about this sort of thing is to go to a power lunch. And so <laughs> we went to a really fancy restaurant uh, um, whose name is escaping me. I think it's gone now. Is it uh, Michael's? Was it Michael's? Not Michael's, okay. but it was on Union Square. Um, oh. And Gramercy Tavern? 
No, it wasn't Grammarcy. All right, sorry, we don't have to play this this game. I, no, sorry. we get. Let's guess. Let's spend the rest of the podcast. Just <laughs> Zen Palette in in two thousand and three. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but it was, it was amazing. And also, you know, he ordered a glass of wine. Was like, you can have one too. I was like, ah. And Weird. I just moved to New York. All of it felt wild to me. Yeah. It was very fun. And that was the only time that that ever happened. Uh, I have just, as I, an, I got a taste. Yeah, you got a taste of the power. Of and it's funny that you, it was like a media executive who who, who took you out, living off of clearly this salary that he that he ha- captured at a time when. No, and he didn't even have that set. Like right. he was retired now. No, he's retired, but um, he, he had a good four hundred one k. I'm sure from that. I'm time. sure. Right, I'm right, right. sure. I asked George Saunders this, and I've asked many writers this about rituals with with food and writing because you know you have such an output and, and your your newsletter is absolutely such an essential read culture study so great so great um but it's a lot of words and you clearly need to be on like point when you're writing so how does food interact when you're like writing one of your newsletters do you need like do you have a snack that powers you up in the middle of a of a writing session do you have anything like ritualistic about the food and writing you know, I used to have great rituals and I feel like now <laughs> I just, I write so much that it's really just like, what are the rituals of your day? And, yeah. you know, I coffee in the morning, like I love to write in the morning. I'm a morning writer or sometimes an afternoon writer, but never an evening writer in any way. Uh, and I think, well, one thing is that I love, I have an enormous sweet tooth <laughs> that yeah. sounds like the tooth is like the size of my face but <laughs> i love eating like chocolate chips or white chocolate chips like a very basic type of candy as sort of like a a, a 10 o'clock second breakfast yeah <laughs> just like a little handful just a little sweet like after you've had your breakfast you're on that second cup of coffee it goes really well and it's it. so it's that's... like the obama almonds but with white chocolate <laughs> chips for Anne. you know for you listen i have i have more than seven okay. um, <laughs> but i will say that when i was in college i had many rituals for what i had to have to like write a paper and one of them was that I had to have like the right kind of gum. It was like extra gum. Mm. So it wasn't like it was a very specific type. I'm like, okay, I got my gum. I got like my 17 beverages. It was just very different in college when you were trying to write at like, you know, 11 o'clock at night. Oh, yeah. The the night writing I'm with you is, is challenging as we get older. But the morning writing and the coffee ritual, are you are you V60 Chemex? Are you are, do you have like a coffee <laughs> setup? You know, I would drink. I, I like when I lived in New York, I loved hazelnut bodega coffee. Nice. Like I just love trash coffee. Yeah. Um always have. And I'm not picky. I don't like to put milk in it. Like it's just, you know, give me some watery crap and that's great. And I like to <laughs> this is so weird. I only like coffee when it's really hot. So mm. like I'll pour myself a full cup. And then drink like the first third of it. And if I'm by myself, then I'll usually throw the, the second part of it and then fill up a little bit, like, you know, put more coffee in there. Yep. And it's totally wasteful, but I only like that one part. And I also don't like the taste of really of microwaved coffee. So agree hard. It's it's tough. My, microwave coffee is bad. Bad news. Don't do it. I Yeah. But this is my privilege. Yep. I live on an island. <laughs> I just have, a, like, I have a normal, you know, whatever the wire cutter recommended coffee machine is. Like, I get semi-fancy coffee in the mail. Like, it's delivered to me. Ooh, where, from where? Let's go there. Where? Uh, it's called, the, the service is called Trade Coffee. Yeah, sure. And what they do is source from different small brew, like, 
coffee brewer people all over the United States. It's cool. It's a cool way to support a lot of places. Yeah. You're supposed to like meticulously grade each package that you receive. I'm like, oh, this was too strong or more fruity notes, whatever. Hilarious. And I, I'm just always <laughs> like, that's good. That's I like good. it. This no, is fine. Trade's a great brand. I, I, I'm glad you called them out. We don't really talk about that much. I got a, a total aside. Is it a ban- Banshees of Inner Sheeran vibe in your island? Yes. So we just watched the movie. Yeah. And over and over again, that's my island. Oh, that's my <laughs> island. <laughs> so you have like one pub that you go to every day. There's no pub. Well, oh, there's a no. restaurant. Um, there are no police. Uh, ah. We also are home to our, it's closing or it, it recently closed, but arguably one of the most famous restaurants in America, which was uh, the Willows. The, co- the Costco chicken place. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Amongst other things. Oh my gosh! Are you? Are you? This is great. Uh, okay. Are you're biased because you live there? Yeah. How did you feel about that whole investigative piece about about Willows and the and the we can the work the work abuse stuff? Let's that's really challenging and we don't want to go there. But the Costco chicken piece where they were essentially buying chicken from Costco and serving it at this like multi hundred dollar a plate restaurant. So my understanding is that, like, that was something that happened, like, when they didn't, when they had to, like, in desperation, basically. Like, sometimes when they need, they were trying to source things locally, they couldn't get enough. They're like, uh, I guess someone will just go to Costco and get some chicken. <laughs> uh, I mean, the the whole premise that everything would be somehow, like, from the island, which was the original idea. This is a tiny-ass island. Literally like, impossible. There's no way. And so they later expanded it to be like locally sourced, which is much more possible because there's growers on other islands. Like there's all sorts of things that you can do to make that possible. You know, I went there once. Um, it was a gift from someone to to mm-hmm. allow me to go to eat there. And it was absolutely one of the best meals of my life. But at the same time, it is a it's a weird setup where you have like you have two restaurants on this island, and one of them is so expensive that basically no one on the island can go. Mm-hmm. And it just and it also brings in a certain sort of and they like clog the ferry line. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Not, I saw that movie too. I saw that movie too. By the way, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, which is supposedly loosely based on on the Willows, but yeah. we're we're a little less intense than what was depicted. What's the other movie. restaurant, Lumi? What's what is it like? Is it is it is it a good restaurant? It's the best. Oh, my nice. gosh. Uh, it's called the Beach Store Cafe, and it has always been called the Beach Store Cafe through many different owners. Cool. <laughs> and it is in the what used to be called the Beach Store, which is the, a place that sold penny candy, everything you could ever need when you got off the ferry. And it's this gorgeous old, it looks like a house. Huh. And the people who run it currently, they used to be in the restaurant business in Bay Area, and they make really really good food that is actually affordable prices um they make detroit style pizza no way detroit style pizza? oh yeah frico crust definitely love yeah. that pizza yeah, yeah definitely there's like a pizza there's a wood-fired pizza oven there and mm. it's just it is absolutely hopping all of the time and a great like actual locus of community involvement. So, so you guys go like pretty regularly and you see some people you know and it's a bit of a Oh yeah, and we know the we know the people who run it. Oh. Like it is just it's wonderful. That sounds like the perfect island restaurant. It, it sounds a little yeah. different than the Costco restaurant. Um <laughs> you yes. fans of your writing will will recognize the the term larping. 
live action yeah. role playing, and you write about it a lot in terms of in context of a job. Um, and I'd like to ask you a little bit about what that means, but then how does it relate to food? I feel we LARP cooking too, in a way. Mm. Yeah. So first of all, the term LARPing your job comes from John Herman, who is now a technology writer for New York Magazine. And he was using it to describe how people like just essentially like play live action role play their job by talking on Slack a lot. Mm -hmm. Like it makes it seem like you're doing a lot of work. And I feel like the pre-internet version of that would be the guy who like walks around the office just being like checking in, you know, mm-hmm. being like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> um, instead of, and it seems like they're doing a lot of work because they're like there all the time and very present in people's minds, but they're not actually mm-hmm. doing work. <laughs> yes. uh, know that guy, know that yes. guy. Yeah. And I feel like the, and it's also, you know, performative is at the heart of this live action role play. Like it yeah. is a performance of work instead of the actual action of work. And so with cooking, I think it's people who are constantly posting like their meal plans uh, or they're like, I'm going to make this or just like perfectly composed Mm -hmm. charcuterie boards or whatever. Like it's just, it is the performance of cooking instead of the actual cooking and the experience of it. And I, I kind of feel like... There's a fine line because someone like you can, there's a way of performing it on social media with Instagram that underlines in an interesting way the fact that like, oh yeah, these people are really doing a lot of interesting cooking and experimental work. Like I think Samin Nostrad actually Mm -hmm. has a wonderful social media presence that show like make every time I see a post of hers, I'm like, that is just the tip of the iceberg of all of this other work that's happening and sometimes it's the inverse where you're like, I see every single thing that they have ever thought about food and maybe there's there, no there there. Exactly. I, I love this point. And I think there was a time, I think it maybe was like five years ago where LARPing cooking was was real. Like it was like very precious. It was like this the single, you know, perfect beauty shot every four days when the other days were likely that individual was dining out or whatever, doing other yeah, things. Yeah. But now I think with the pandemic, I feel like we've moved away from LARPing cooking and like someone like Bettina Makalental, who has a great, uh, you know, great page, I'll link to in the show notes, where it's like every day there's a dish. So like you're not LARPing, you're actually cooking every day. You're just like creating content that's that looks cool, but you're actually showing frequency. Because I think with cooking, it's frustrating when you when you follow somebody and it's like once a month, there's like this like big, sweeping, dramatic dinner party scene thing happening. Yeah. And that yeah. feels like LARPing. It just, like, resonated with me a bit. Right, right. No, and I think that, like, actually, uh, Alison Roman's uh, newsletter did yeah. this recently where she, like, it was, like, three soups and then a totally. fourth soup that was, like, all of the three soups combined. <laughs> <laughs> totally true. So it was, like, a very real, yeah. like, here's how I essentially, like, did leftovers four days in a row from <laughs> from a soup. Yeah. No, it's it's very cool that uh, we've shifted a little bit in our in – our, um, performance, um, which we all do on social media. I think we're all a little bit realer. I'm glad you brought up Alice, and I'm glad you brought up soups because that segues nicely into your interest in soups. I have a real love for soups. I've actually even would say, and I want to debate with you, it's an 11-month-a-year thing. Like, I think September is the one month out of the year we take off from soups. Um, No way. I do not cook soups in the summer. Really? No way. Wait, okay, so let's get into this because, I mean, there's like, 
gazpacho. There's like pea soup. There's vichyssoise. There's melon soups. So you're just not a cold soup person. Uh, you know, I'll eat it in a restaurant. I'm like, oh, that's delightful. Yeah. And then, you know, in the summer for me, summer is delightful in the Pacific Northwest. It yeah. is the reason people live here. You know, it is a constant temperature of right around 76 degrees. It cools down into the 50s at night. There's zero humidity. It is wonderful. Yeah. And I basically just grill every single day. Oh, really? And I know you can like grill and turn things into soup. Sure. I know you can take a salad and just put it in the blender and make <laughs> it into a soup. But I just, I don't, I, I really don't do much complicated cooking at all yeah. in the summer. And I know gazpacho isn't necessarily complicated in the way that we think of it. But for me, soup is, soup is hot. Yeah. So w- let's talk about hot soup right now. We're in the winter. I mean, what's, what's, what's on your soup, in your soup rotation right now? Oh man. I mean, I really like every week I do like about two soups. Uh, I really like, there's a new one and I think it's, um, it might be Ali Slagle. I can't remember. I should have looked before we got on, but it's French lentils, uh, like a smoked sausage, a little bit of apple. Mm-hmm. I add parsnip to it. And then you put like a, a non-sweet and a dry cider in there. And it is amazing. It's such an interesting melange of flavors and more intense, I think, than what you expect with a lentil soup. I mean, putting a really dry love. cider in is beautiful. That's such a cool yeah. component. Yeah. Complexity. And that's that's from New York Times cooking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my other favorite also... This is just like the MVP it from this is from Melissa Clark is an orzo fennel chickpea soup mm. and it sounds so weird. And you like the tomatoes in it is you use um, like cherry tomatoes instead of using canned tomatoes, which are such a staple of soup. But you use cherry tomatoes for this and then a spinach or collard green as your kind of end brightening and it is just phenomenal. Oh, and you put a little bit of parm on top. Yeah, I definitely There's need to have that. So much stuff going on there, and I it, it just ah, I love it. Is it fennel forward? I mean, are we talking about fennel seed dried, or are we doing actually the no. real bulbs? We're Actual in? fennel bulb. Yeah. And the suggestion is that you can use fennel or celery. I am absolutely anti-celery. God, in soup. me too, man. Stop it. Just, it. Ugh. And the fennel is it's do, it's not fennel forward. It is just a lovely little um it's almost sweet, yeah. but not in the bad sweet fennel sausage sort of way. Like it's the <laughs> it's the good way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, fennel is I very just sweet. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, fennel like carrots is is quite sweet, even it has the, the anise kind of bite to it. There is some sweetness mm-hmm. in the root. Um, I, I hard agree about celery. I mean, like back in like the day, Scoffier and all those old French dudes used to do a lot yep. of celery soups. Yep. But oh, stop. Nope. Out no. of there. Um, I also I'm a huge proponent of adding parsnips to like most robust cool. soups. Uh, it's anything that calls for a potato, you can use a parsnip instead. And yeah, just wonderful. And I, oh, love, and- the, I love this deep dive. I mean, soup clearly is an interest of yours. I mean, are you going to go pro with soup? <laughs> I feel like no. recipe writing is in in your in your future if it no. hasn't been in your past. No, no, I have a few a few, a few strong opinions <laughs> about about soups, which is not enough to make you a recipe yeah. writer. And also, you know, the reason we're talking is because, or the reason people have even come to understand me as a person who loves soup, 
is in my newsletter in the fall, we have like a soup thread to to rule them all, essentially. It's like yeah, all the best soups. And it is hundreds up to a thousand comments of people talking about their favorite soups and you know, people that are part of the, the newsletter compile them into a spreadsheet. And it's just, it's really wonderful. Yeah. And I just think that soup, it's kind of like when <laughs> it's kind of basic, right? Like, yeah. like I'm talking about like basic bitch style. Like it's <laughs> like a, it's not controversial in any way to be like, I like soup. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. And it is stovetop. So you're not actually, you know, turning on the oven. You're not having to use too many, too much equipment. So it is pretty basic in many ways. And I agree with you. I also think soup is really forgiving of people who aren't, for people who are new cooks, people yeah. who aren't practice cooks or however you want to talk about it in a way that something like a stir fry even is not. No. No, stir fry. I mean, exactly. I mean, stir fry can be very complicated, but can be very simple. It can be both ways, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you could acquire one kitchen superpower, what would that be? Uh, like the ability to chop all of the aromatics faster. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of recipes that I make, I went through I, like the beginning of the pandemic. You know, I think a lot of people who were frequent cook, cooks had a similar experience where there's like one cookbook that you really strongly associate with the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was Melissa Clark's dinner. Yeah. And I seemingly every single recipe in that book calls for you to chop up just a pile of ginger, garlic, uh, uh, green onion, and there's something else always like a, a cilantro or something. Yeah, like there's that. definitely some kind of herb. Like a, yeah. Herb. Yeah. Jalapeno, too. So you just have this massive pile. Yeah. And there's something actually that I find really therapeutic about chopping but the doing all of it at the same time it's just it's, it, so at some point you're like when is this garlic actually going to get smaller <laughs> that's actually such a good point i mean have you ever made with with that that book is like one of my favorites i've had melissa on a couple times and we've talked about it have you ever made the harissa chicken thighs from no, that book? but people people really uh that's one of the recipes that comes up a ton. Yeah. I actually don't eat a ton of meat. Okay. I am okay. not a vegetarian by any means. I'm kind of more like, you know, the Jenny Rosen I can't say Rosen stretch. Like, yeah. Yes, like the weekday vegetarian. Yeah. And I will eat meat when I go to my mom's house or uh go to a restaurant, but for me it doesn't like when I'm looking for recipes a chicken recipe, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to go off the island and buy some chicken and then bring it back. Hey, it sounds <laughs> like, like the I best way to bring to... a freezer bag or, a fr you know, like a refrigerator bag. So I think that that's part of it. Also, just general. It sounds like the best way to like restrict when you're restricting some of the items that you can off like buy at the store. It seems like kind of the best way to learn to cook when you have to be that nimble and that creative, right? Yeah, well, and also I think sometimes people ask, how do you deal with the fact that you know, your major grocery store, you have to take a ferry off the island to get to it. I will say we have like a wonderful store on the island that's like a, a bodega plus almost. Mm -hmm. And the way that they get all of their food is, and I don't know how this is legal. It is though. Mm -hmm. They like, go to Costco and then buy stuff in bulk and then repackage it. Literally every bodega in New York City operates that way. 
Okay. Like literally, I mean, like if you go to Costco, it's like a lot of bodega owners. I mean, it's totally the way of the world out here in New York, at least. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I love, and they also have everything from kids' toys, like, it, and it's nice. something that you don't see a lot out here in the West, but on this island, we have one. And if you like, if you run out of any canned good, any dry good, like they have that for sure. It's more, it's just the the fresh ingredients. But the again, the pandemic prepared me to mm-hmm. plan for a week, if not more of meals. And I have a a great pantry that has everything that I want in it. Mm. Um, Always a backup. Like I have a backup tube of Harissa. Mm. You know, I just, I have always enough of those things. And then also we have something called dry dock every year where our ferry goes to get serviced for three weeks. And there's a foot ferry that you can take back and forth. So you're not stuck on the Island, but you really got to plan for like three weeks. And it's, it's kind of a mini homesteading. I love it. It's really. So you stick around during that three month period, three week period, you stick around. Yeah. Oh man. I guess like it's, it's probably just great boot camp for survival when you don't have a ferry (laughs) for the end of days. Yeah, but you get, so you could still get off the Island and you could, people, park their car on the other side and you can go to the grocery store that you just have to then put your grocery bag on your shoulder and then come back. But most of the time, what we do is we plan for, you -hmm. know, at least two weeks of food and And it's totally doable. Let me ask you, is there somebody in food or kind of like the food adjacent world that you would like to profile? The family behind uh, ballerina firm, which I've I've written about with um, the writer Meg Conley. We did kind of a Q&A about this. But basically, they're a very popular influencer account or Instagram account about living on a farm uh, in Utah with uh, six, maybe seven now beautiful children. And she used to be a ballerina. And that's why it's called Ballerina Farm. And it's just about like their life raising kids and supposedly like cooking all the time, very family friendly meals. And the secret of it is, of course, that she married one of the heirs of JetBlue. Uh, So there's a ton of money and how that presence of that money gets invisibilized. And like, here's how we, you know, create all of this beautiful food. Here's how I have all this time to create all of this beautiful food and run this business and be a mom. But all of the the parts that make that possible are really not visible. Sounds thoroughly insufferable. Thoroughly insufferable. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think, but also very addictive and very alluring for a lot of people. Just sure. like dream of of essentially homesteading um, and what is absent from that depiction. <laughs> is like the, the private jet blue flight out back. <laughs> to get you off the homestead. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, I would, can you write it? Write it. Write that profile. Let's go. Let's do it. I want to yeah. hear. <laughs> do you have you have you have you dipped into Pioneer Woman into that whole world? But what's oh, going on well, up there? That's another. You know what I would want to <laughs> do actually is uh, so, similar to how I profiled Waco. You know, it, it was ostensibly about fixer upper and what. What Chip and Joanna Gaines' presence in Waco has done to the town, but it was really a profile of Waco, right, and of the people who live in Waco and and how it is transformed and what is gained and lost in that process. And so I would want to do a profile of the town that Pioneer Woman has yeah. gradually transformed. Yeah, it's in Oklahoma, right? Just mm-hmm. like in the in the dead center. Um, yep. So you're a cookbook fan. You've mentioned Jenny Rosenstrach, Melissa Clark, Allison Roman. You've mentioned. Ali Slagle, a lot of a lot of great 
cookbooks that I'm sure you have. What are a few others that you like to cook from? Uh, well, that's basically it. I am not, <laughs> I, you know, I say that I'm a, like, I, it's like, <laughs> because I'm on a food podcast, I'm like, oh, let me talk about some of the podcast or some of the, <laughs> some of the cookbooks I use. Um, I've, I think I've only recently become a cookbook person. And part of this is that cookbooks are expensive. And when I was in grad school, there, there were other cookbooks that I had, um, that I would like photocopy. I would go to the library and I would photocopy recipes out of them. Or I was also much more of a, and this I got from my mom, you would like get a, go to the library and read Bon Appetit and photocopy a recipe or Mm -hmm. hand copy it and then put it in a plastic like holder Mm -hmm. and then put it in a binder. And so for a very long time, that was my cookbook was all of these accumulated recipes from other places And eventually in one of my many moves, I was like, oh, this is just so big and unwieldy. And I, you know, took pictures of some of the recipes and then I got rid of it. And I regret that because it was lovely to Mm -hmm. have like this accumulated recipe um, stash, essentially. Mm -hmm. The keepers, the keepers. So, and it sounds like uh, you should maybe start building back these keepers, creating a new sleeve, maybe going to the library and doing some photocopying. This is the tension, right? Is that I think a lot of us are trying to accumulate less stuff. And I actually just wrote about like the process of going through all of my high school stuff, which was home in my mom's basement and being pretty brutal in the amount of things that I threw away because I found so many things that I loved and I like spent a moment with those things and it was wonderful. But then also I don't have the the space to keep every single artifact from my high school life, <laughs> including all of the notes and all of the photos and everything. And so how do I figure out how to do that now in a way that also like doesn't take up as much space as that unwieldy binder? I just, I don't know. And I don't think that like the online ways of saving recipes Mm -mm. do the same thing it's this balance between you know decluttering and and trying to like yeah one thing i do do with my cookbooks is i write on them yeah when i cooked the meal and who i cooked it with like what was the general thing not just like less salt or whatever that's cool you have like a little log i i i I like that i like logging who you who've written who you've cooked with and i agree with you like the recipe box icon on New York Times cooking is not as fun to look through than like a box of recipes or a binder of recipes. Let me ask you, you have many readers who respond to the threads. You'll post a thread on on culture study and you'll ask like, what are you cooking? And I I just want to ask you, are you hearing or seeing anything about the trend in home cooking right now that, that, that really may surprise you and, and others? Let me think, because I recently did a, you know, quick fix thing that things that you do on a weekday when you're just like, okay, I got to put together dinner really quickly. I do think that there is like a return to, instead of like this fetishization of everything must be fresh, everything must be locally sourced. There's, you know, the, the rise of popularity of like sheet pan dinners, right? Which are kind of like, how do I take the ease of a casserole and combine it with things that seem fresh and, but also do it very simply. Uh, That to me, I think is an expression of this desire to eat in a way that when you finish the meal, you're like, I feel good, right? Like I I Mm -hmm. love that meal. It made me feel good and strong and all the different things. 
but then also have it be super easy. So I think I'm seeing that. I also see just generally fewer and fewer people eating red meat in any way. Mm -hmm. And I think that that that's a really interesting trend, right? Like the people I know who have like a pork chop for for dinner. <laughs> I mean, pork chop, I guess, is white meat, right? Yeah, they would say in the nineteen nineties, maybe, but maybe we, it's pretty much red meat. <laughs> yeah, it's like they're like that style of eating. I think is increasingly a thing of the past. Uh, and then I also think that there is a there's like a denigration of any style of eating that's like, oh, we only do clean eating or like yeah. wellness eating or I don't know, like cooking light style, right? Like this, there that there is no understanding of like, this is a bad food or a good food. It's more seeking balance. Yeah, I think you're right. And and those are all great points. I think the having such a, a polar view of, of, of cooking, either it's light or it's not light or healthy or unhealthy is thankfully phasing out of our our lexicon and, and, and food media, really. And we asked all guests in the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to create this this book, what would that book be? <laughs> Can I say soups? <laughs> Delicious soups. <laughs> You're going to do it. don't involve <laughs> celery. <laughs> Uh, or cold soups. Okay. No dessert soups, no cold soups, just <laughs> delicious soups. Also, they, like some meat soups, but not a ton. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is even though I eat meat, uh, I make a lot of soups for friends on the island who don't eat meat. And yeah. so I need soups that basically rely on the, the steady bean as their source of protein. <laughs> soups for all. Yes. Love it. And Helen Peterson, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. This was a real delight. Thank you so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 